From the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham, this is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. 2023 is almost, not quite, but nearly in the history books. This will be our final episode of Due South until the new year. And while we could review the week, as we have been doing, we're using a wider lens on this Friday as we listen back and review the biggest and some of the most notable and hilarious stories in the world of North Carolina politics and news from the last 355 days. Denarius, the music, please. I am Trisha Cawthon. I am a single mom of two amazing sons, a teacher. We have come to an agreement on Medicaid expansion. Right now at the legislative building, the State House and Senate are in the process of overriding six vetoes Governor Roy Cooper made. The bills largely surround transgender care and charter schools. First, the GOP is looking to ban transgender women from participating in female sports. I'm a divorced man. Uh, it was a casual relationship. It was it was sporadic at best. Today, I add Republican to that list. Republican lawmakers did not deny they used gerrymandering to give themselves a political advantage. The chair declares the House in recess subject to the call of the chair. Medicaid expands, abortion restrictions enacted, the governor's veto neutered, a bow-tied congressman rises to the top before hanging up his gavel, and a once little-known state lawmaker from the state's biggest city divorces her party. And it was, lest I remind you, an off year. Nevertheless, lots to reflect upon. And here to help us synthesize 2023 are Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief, the News and Observer, Danielle Battaglia, Capitol Hill correspondent for the News and Observer and the Charlotte Observer, Travis Fain, State House reporter at WRL, and Colin Campbell, Capitol Bureau Chief at WUNC. Hello, y'all. Hey, Jeff. Hello. Nice to be here. We'll get to the tawdry extramarital stuff, a fight over slot machines in Rockingham County, and the inability of one party goer to stay between the lines while driving her car. However, we begin with the big picture, shifting stakes. 2023 was a new year in the recent power dynamics of North Carolina politics because Governor Cooper effectively lost his veto. All 19 of the bills that he did veto were overridden by the legislature. Don, remind us, please, how significant of a change this was. It's huge. I mean, the control and down to, you know, one person's vote. So it's North Carolina. It's a you need a supermajority to overturn a veto, which is three fits. And if every single person in the room, it's you know, it can be an exact science. If somebody isn't in the room, then you can also override. But that's where the tension has been the past few years with close lines with with Cotham switch. If you have everybody in the room, Republicans can do whatever they want. And so that just changed everything this year. And I remember going into the year, you know, Cotham switch was what, April, uh, when she became became a Republican and there was officially a Republican supermajority in the House. Before they were one vote short of a supermajority in the House, they had the supermajority veto-proof in the Senate. Um, and so there was a lot of speculation of to what degree could House Speaker Tim Moore convince just one Democrat uh, to vote with Republicans on some mm-hmm. key issues that the governor was going to likely veto, um, and to what extent you know they might have some shenanigans around somebody's a couple people are absent and they do the vote that day. Um, once we finally had a party switch, then a lot of that speculation went away, and we just kind of knew, okay, so if the governor vetoes a bill, it's probably getting overridden and probably fairly quickly after the fact. Synthesizing this uh, for listeners, Travis, uh, we, you know we have a range of knowledge here, but you take the next sentence here. 
supermajorities are now in place at the General Assembly. When that statement becomes reality in the spring, where does your mind go next in terms of what's going to follow, potentially? Well, I think the next thing that may happen that is really going to be on everybody's radar may not rely so much on the supermajority, because I think they're going to come back to casinos, right? A, a, a discussion about legalizing new non-tribal casinos is something that the Senate leader, Phil Berger, really, really wants. Uh, and so that's going to come back around. What, what else? I mean, you know, the way sessions work, of course, it's a two-year deal. And so a lot of stuff has been done in the first year, leaving less stuff to do in the second year. They all have to run for re-election. You know, they, 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 they're going to want to get out of there a little bit faster. Uh, but I think it really plays into the dynamics of the next election, too, because we have these new maps. And the supermajority may continue somewhat indefinitely. Uh, and that's before we talk about the 2024 governor's race, because right. if a Republican wins the governor's mansion, then the supermajority doesn't really matter because that's, because right. the governor can just sign bills into law. And to an extent, the supermajority, uh, well, the governorship didn't matter all that much from whatever it was, 2013 yeah. to early 2017. Yeah, we could elect another Democrat as governor, and if they kept their supermajorities, wouldn't really matter that much. The governor gets weaker and weaker by the year. A little bit of context here. In the governor's first two years, Governor Roy Cooper's first two years in office, he vetoed 28 bills. 23 of them were overridden by the legislature. Republicans held, of course, veto-proof margins for those two years. Then in 2018, Democrats broke those supermajorities. And for the next four years, Cooper vetoed 47 pieces of legislation, none of which were overridden. Since the GOP has again picked up supermajorities during the 2022 midterms, Cooper has not sustained a single veto. So let's flash back. November of last year, Republicans claimed the supermajority in the Senate, with which Colin noted here just a moment ago. They were but one seat shy uh, entering the year on the House side from having that party line veto proof margin. Enter the representative from Mecklenburg County. I am Trisha Cotham. I am a single mom of two amazing sons, a teacher, a small business owner, a woman with strong faith a national championship basketball coach, and a public servant. Today, I add Republican to that list. Now, I'm old enough to remember when Trisha Cotham was staunchly progressive. Travis, remind us of when this switch came and per Cotham, why? Oh, man, don't make me put a date on it. In the spring, didn't you say April, it was April? Yeah. April. Yeah. That's good enough. And, you know, the, the session had gotten going. Uh, but we were kind of just getting into the meat of it. And then we hear, oh, she's she's switching. And, and, and what it did, as Colin noted, is it just kind of took the guesswork out of everything. Because I think that Republicans would have been able to convince a Democrat here or there to back key stuff. A lot of the same stuff still would have been overturned, but not as much. And it just gave Republicans freedom to, you know, all right, we run this state again. We, we What we say goes. Uh, and it kind of led to a budget. Which is the biggest thing they do, of course. Of course, yeah. It, they could put that together in secret. They could uh, give Democrats less of what they wanted. They could use it as leverage. Medicaid expansion is leverage to get what they wanted because they tied uh, Medicaid expansion, this Democratic priority for many years, to the budget. It just caught them switch empowered Republicans in a way that you very seldom see uh, a switch flip at the General Assembly. She also kind of took the the heat off of a lot of swing Democrats. So she wasn't as, you know, as journalists, we we're all watching the beginning of session and what was going to happen with who was going to vote with Republicans. I think we all had a list on our, you know, desk of who we need to watch for a possible swing vote, right? Right. Right. So when she turned, assuming that she voted party line every time, which I believe she did, right, uh, then 
you don't you don't think about those other names anymore. And so all of that heat was off of them. And she basically absorbed all of that. And the people that would, you know, run off the floor because they didn't want to talk to us that we'd have to have to chase. It was, you know, all centered around her. And now she was on the other and, side. And the, of the most aisle. I think interesting thing about Cotham was at least initially while her votes really shifted and now she's pretty much in lockstep, as you mentioned, Don, with the GOP, the initial reasoning was more about personalities than politics. I mean, the reason she gave for making the switch was that she felt sort of ostracized by the Democratic Party. She felt like they were essentially being mean to her um, and uh, that she didn't feel like she had a home there anymore while Republicans were being uh, recording her as a, a potential at least swing vote and uh, party switcher. Uh, and, and that caused her to sort of switch teams, perhaps more so than any dramatic shifts in policy. But then, of course, her voting record since that switch has been largely lockstep with GOP. And from Emily's list to LGBTQ advocates to even gun control, uh, Trisha Cotham was she was a progressive voice in the room for a long time. And then all of a sudden uh, she shifted and her shift allowed. And we'll talk about this a little bit later in the roundup here on Due South uh, abortion restrictions or additional abortion restrictions to come into play to be enacted here in North Carolina. A little bit of a curveball here, but I want to bring Danielle Battaglia in, who's on the line from Washington and largely covers Congress. But this was such a big story that it did make headlines and news across the country. Uh, and to the extent you can reflect on it, Danielle, how was this story, this switch received uh, on Capitol Hill? I mean, it was a big deal. We were, I was taking calls about it in the press room at the Capitol. And I remember seeing New York Times reporters rolling backwards in their chairs to listen to what I was talking about because all the national media was paying attention. This was a, uh, you know, Republican leaning a uh, state that just got redder because we lost veto district. And so this was something that people were paying attention to. Trisha Cotham had also made a name for herself nationally because of her stances on abortion rights uh, from back in the day. And so this was something that people were now paying attention to. And just briefly, whoever wants to take this here, uh, she is persona non grata. She's a pariah within progressive circles. Uh, just Give me a glimmer for the next year. Yeah, what but, it, what I bet it, it's yeah. going to be easy for her opponent to fundraise at a national level. That's going to be a race uh, coming up next year. Yeah, I think multiple Democrats have filed for that to take their shot at it. Interestingly, no Republican primary opponent for Cotham. I had wondered, is some sort of more lifelong Republican conservative going to jump in that race and say, hey, I've been a Republican forever. She's been it for a year, and that hasn't happened. I mean, she's wildly popular, I think, with the Republican Party. Yeah. Go ahead, Doug. I was going to say, I think she had to uh, prove herself as a Republican to them with all of the votes this session, where, uh, you know, a conservative in her district would primary her and say, well, you were just a Democrat a few months ago. Yeah. Why should we trust you? And, you know, that may have had to do also with why she voted consistently with them the rest of the session. There will be 120 legislative uh, contests for the state house in 2024, and that one down in Mecklenburg County. Certainly going to see hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, of spending. Maybe uh, it will approach seven figures, which has only happened, I think, a very small handful of times in state house races uh, previously, as we think about general assembly contests. All right. We are reflecting on the year in North Carolina politics with Travis Fain of WRAL, Don Vaughn of the News and Observer, Danielle Battaglia of McClatchy and Colin Campbell of WUNC. Ahead, Beth Woods' crash, Tim Moore's tryst, and McHenry's exasperation. This is the North Carolina Friday News Roundup, annual style, here on Due South from WUNC. Welcome back. It's Due South on WUNC. On this day 34 years ago, 
A coastal pre-Christmas winter whiteout, December 22nd, 1989, saw record snow accumulations as more than 15 inches fell in Wilmington, as well as surrounding areas. According to the North Carolina State Climate Office, a foot of snow was dumped on Nags Head. And if you're wondering, the snow stayed for Christmas. There were all-time low temperature records established a few days later on the 25th, among them zero at the Wilmington Airport, negative three in Southport, and four below zero in New Bern. We're chatting about the year in North Carolina politics and news with Colin Campbell, Danielle Battaglia, Travis Fain, and Don Vaughn. Coldest Christmas you've ever experienced. Anything come to mind? Or Probably last year, right, when it was like 20 degrees all... It was really cold. I don't know. And some people didn't live, have power. I used to live in Virginia, and I remember the first time I looked at my phone and there were negative numbers, and I thought, <laughs> oh, boy, that's that's no fun. I lived in Virginia, too, and I was thinking, where was I in 1989? I was in Northern Virginia, which was also probably snowy, but it was pretty consistent there, like a foot or two, and it was the question wasn't, are they going to close schools? It was going to be, like, for how many days? And Are we going to get a full week off of school in Virginia for this snowstorm? Because that happened a lot. Yeah. Actually, this- when I was living in Blacksburg, it was the worst snowstorm, where I had to, like, walk half a mile to 7-Eleven to get something to eat. I was a junior. This is not a Christmas story, but it's a winter story, and maybe it's why I grabbed that historical nugget, just to tell this very quick story. I was a junior at Syracuse University. School was not canceled in the four years I went to to, to Cuse. And my junior year, there was a day in late January, early February, where the wind chill was negative 46, and all surrounding public schools were canceled because there was a risk of uh, damage, skin damage to exposure to weather that cold. Meanwhile, I'm walking three quarters of a mile to my class. So uh, anyway, that was- Colleges are so much more hardy than the K-12 schools for whatever reason. But Jeff, did you walk uphill both ways to class? Mm. (laughs) Mm. Fair. No, I didn't, if I recall the walk, but it was- It was icy. Uh, All right. Back to our review of 2023 North Carolina politics and news uh, with Danielle, Travis, Don and Colin. As we've been discussing, a new power dynamic swept into Raleigh and North Carolina politics in 2023. What had been a divided government was at best much less so. Republicans hold virtually all the high cards now and moving forward. And as an aside, it's worth noting, conservatives also dominate the state Supreme Court. Thinking about policy, this had a, a notable change overall. Right now at the legislative building, the state house and Senate are in the process of overriding six vetoes Governor Roy Cooper made, including bills dealing with what teachers can say in the classroom and restricting what transgender minors can do. Today is about to tie a record for the number of vetoes overridden in a single day. Now, with all this tension and changes, perhaps the most notable policy shift in the wake of the new power structure pertains to abortion. The changes rolled back reproductive access from about 20 weeks to about 12 weeks for expectant mothers. North Carolina's new abortion restrictions went into effect at midnight. Abortions are legal up to 12 weeks with some exceptions after that. I think we're headed in the right direction. I think that babies will be saved, which is the goal, but also more women are gonna, and families are going to be served through this bill. It's an incredible burden. SB 20 as a whole is going to keep patients from seeking abortion care. All right, Colin, remind us, let's just stick with the policy for a moment. 20 weeks down to 12. What else changed from a statutory standpoint? Yeah, so there was that. There was uh, the exceptions were kept in there for certain periods of time after 12 weeks. Uh, Things like the life of the mother, the fetal abnormalities, uh, rape and incest. So Largely, the the Republicans here were trying to sort of thread the needle between the much more draconian 
uh, strict abortion restrictions in some other red states uh, with states that largely, you know, didn't change anything as a result of the fall of Roe v. Wade. Um, so we're kind of, as a result, middle of the pack in terms of what this bill mm-hmm. actually changed for North Carolina, but certainly a, a good bit more restrictive than what we had at the beginning of the year. Travis, yeah, and it, it wasn't 20 weeks to 12 weeks doesn't right. actually stop a ton of abortions because a really high percentage happened before 12 weeks and did so. Leave bef- about 90 percent. But what, what, what changed before 12 weeks was a number of things. There were more hoops basically you had to jump through, including uh, a, a phone call that you were supposed to have with your doctor. I think, was it 48 hours ahead of a, a, an abortion or 72? I can't remember the waiting period, but there has been a waiting period. But now that becomes in person and then you have to go in person for the abortion and then you're supposed to have uh, 72 hours later i think a third in person so i mean if you think about someone who is poor and lives in a rural area uh, where there's not a clinic nearby now they have to go three times uh, so i think when, when when we heard democrats call it a ban uh, which Republicans push back on a mm-hmm, lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that sort of language was why. And we were sort of a destination, I think, for people from more restrictive states prior to this going in effect where people were coming to North Carolina and you saw areas see a big spike in the last year or so uh, with the number of uh, abortions performed. That will change because if you're coming from like Alabama or something, that kind of process is not going to be that easy to get through unless you're willing to spend a couple of weeks up here. It's still a little looser than than the like in complete restrictive states around North Carolina, and a lot of people came um, before the law changed, and I believe you know would have to have shifted now because of the time frame. But what Travis was saying, the the criticism from Democrats is that it's not just first trimester because once you jump through all these hoops, you actually have to like move the move the clock back, and mm-hmm. that creates a smaller window from when someone finds out they're pregnant if they want to do that. It's not a bill that uh, is designed equally or implemented equally, because as Travis notes, uh, it's dependent upon how far somebody lives to a clinician. It depends on transportation access. It depends on your job, what kind of flexibility you have, what kind of depends on a lot of different variables. Uh, Since Roe was overturned a year and a half ago by the U.S. Supreme Court, this is an issue that obviously has gone back to the states. And there have been a number of states that have pursued putting this uh, within their their constitutions. There have been special elections that have really hinged on this. There was a judicial race, if, if memory serves, in Wisconsin, where this was a, you know, a, a, a central battle cry. What have been the electoral ramifications here as of now? There aren't any yet. I don't, I don't think believe. we know until this general election in 2024, um, because the only elections we had in North Carolina this year were municipal races, which obviously a lot of those are nonpartisan, and they certainly uh, don't get into anybody doing anything related to abortion. Um, so we really don't know yet. And and you mentioned the ballot issues, initiatives in other states. We don't have that process in North Carolina unless the legislature puts something on the ballot, which they've said, as, as it pertains to abortion, ain't never going to do. Um, so... You know, we we really have to wait and see what the impacts are going to be in terms of next year's election. I think Republicans took all of that into account when they came up with, you know, the version of the bill and they yeah. cited polls a lot. And that's what they're thinking. They're thinking, how much is this going to affect the 2024 elections? Maybe at the legislative level, if people think about that and understand exactly how the General Assembly works, but probably more top of ticket. Probably statewide, because I think there are very few competitive legislative races where that could be a deciding factor in whether a Republican or a Democrat wins a swing district. But certainly in terms of motivating voters who are upset about this um, to actually turn out in 2024, I think that could be uh, play a pretty big role. I won't ask you all to speculate. Feel free to speculate if you would like to jump in here. 
My conventional wisdom, maybe not, not all that conventional, is if Republicans get supermajorities and or increase those margins in 2024, you can rest assured that come 2025, which is, you know, whatever, 12 and a half months from now, there will be even further restrictions pursued at the General Assembly. Not saying they're definitely going to go into law, but I think that this is definitely an issue that could continue to play out here for the next year and a half or so. I mean, there will certainly be a ton of pressure uh, to do so from conservative groups. They wanted a six-week bill. They wanted a heartbeat bill. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, if he becomes governor, I mean, he's made it pretty clear. He's he's walked things back and then walked them forward, back and forward. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, it, it's clear to me that he would sign uh, one of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country uh, were he to become governor. Uh, and that, you know, e- even if the, the supermajority exists, yeah. uh, that leaves room for Republicans who aren't comfortable with that not to vote for it and it still become law in North Carolina. Here on Due South with Travis, Don, Danielle, and Colin talking about the year in North Carolina news and politics, a year in which North Carolina politics got a little bit more conservative, at least uh, those who make the rules and the laws. There was another interesting uh, and notable issue, another culture war topic played out uh, in 2023. The North Carolina House expected to override five different bills vetoed by Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. The bills largely surround transgender care and charter schools. First, the GOP is looking to ban transgender women from participating in female sports. They're also looking to ban gender transition surgeries and care for minors. All right, this transgender health care athletes athletics issue came to Raleigh this year. Not unique to North Carolina by any means. Uh, Colin, kick us off here. Who was really pushing or driving this and what were they hoping to achieve at the General Assembly? You know, this is sort of a national conservative push. So I think the Republicans here were largely going in line with what we were seeing in other states. Uh, Sort of the the big changes was uh, if you're a transgender athlete uh, at high school or college level, uh, if you're a transgender female, you cannot play on a female team. Uh, they, I think, changed it so it wasn't really affecting sort of the other way around, but it was billed as this sort of uh, fairness and competition thing. Uh, you had the health care changes where anyone under 18 uh, cannot access gender-affirming care, be it uh, surgeries or hormone treatments. Uh, so that was a big shift on that. Uh, again, sort of following a very national push, you saw a lot of national organizations and sort of advocates come to North Carolina uh, for these two pieces of legislation. Um, very much a, a partisan battle over these things and another aspect of why the supermajority made a big difference this year. There are times while covering politics when it has seemed to me, seemed to others in the, the press room where I don't spend much time anymore, but I used to spend lots of time with y'all, uh, when it's an open question as to whether or not a, a bill is ready to fix an issue or if legislation you know, kind of serves to be a solution and then go find a problem. Uh, Travis, take the bait, if you will. Was this a, was this a fix in search of a problem or, or is there a problem here that lawmakers were trying to deal with? I mean, there was obviously some fear mongering involved. I, I, and I, I heard someone say this a while back, and I think it's a pretty solid bit of a political analysis, is that ever since gay marriage became more and more accepted in society, uh, the Republicans did not have that. Conservative Republicans particularly did not have that to point to as, uh, you know, uh, the social fabric is decaying. Well, the, you know, this 0.01 or whatever percent of the population in the world uh, that uh, folks that are transgender, it's so few people. And yet it, it dominates uh, the conversation and some of the politics so much that it, to me, it just seems very likely uh, that if there is a problem to fix, it's a real small one. Yep. And it's only a problem in some people's minds. But 
it sells to the voters. Right. I think they were just thinking about using it when they run for election in 2024. And you've already seen, I think, Tim Moore's congressional campaign, the House Speaker, now trying to run to Congress. He's he's brought that up in several of his campaign videos so far as his talking point of, like, I'm keeping men out of women's sports teams. And that's, that's going to be a talking point you're going to hear again and again from Republicans in the primary and then again in the general. And almost any bill that, that you all cover on a regular basis, th- there is an intersection of policy and politics. But this strikes me as one where the, the intersection is, is really not it's not close to what we're talking about. This is largely politics with, I mean, yeah, there, there's a policy vehicle, but this is less about policy and less about, you know, uh, appropriating money for this bridge or trying to take care of community college funding. And this is much more of a political issue. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it affects relatively, I think, the, the number of transgender athletes currently playing in high school athletics in the state is like less than 10, maybe even fewer than that. Um, it's, it's a very small number of people, but it is a political issue and one that Republicans think will sell to their base. And I think on Democratic side, uh, Durham Democratic House member Marsha Morey described it as she's like, regardless of like the actual wordings we've done, the bills, what you think about, you know, sports and that sort of thing. It, she called it mean spirited multiple times. And that's how she saw it and others. All right. We have spent a lot of time talking about the North Carolina General Assembly with good reason. But of course, You can't chat about North Carolina politics without uh, giving a lot of time, credence and deference to that congressional delegation, which uh, had a lot happening here in 2023. The chair declares the House in recess subject to the call of the chair. Danielle Battaglia on the line from Washington, D.C., a little known bow tie wearing congressman who uh, first ran for office when he was like 25 years old. It's somewhere here in my notes, 27 years. I think he ran for the first time when he was 25. First went to the North Carolina House when he was 27. Patrick McHenry uh, ascended to uh, one of the top spaces uh, in government this year. Remind us why and how and when this happened. I mean, he uh, he self-describes as a little guy in a bow tie, just walking around doing his thing. But he actually came into Congress. I believe he was 29. He's been there for 20 years, and he either turned 48 or 49. Sorry, Representative McHenry, for not remembering. Um, And he he came in kind of as a firebrand. He made a lot of controversial statements. He uh, had a, I mean, 20 years ago, Madison Cawthorn-esque about him, which is probably really overselling what he was. Feels but, like um, a little bit was, of an oversell. He, I mean, he, yeah, a little yeah. oversell. He, uh, he had less controversy, but made controversial statements. But he was told to tone it down and focus on what he wanted to do in Congress to make a difference. And he really took that to heart and um, decided to focus on financial services and his entire goal was to become financial services chairman, which he became this year. And in the midst of that, accidentally became uh, interim speaker of the House. <laughs> accidentally. It's like taking a wrong turn on 440 and ending up at a... Oh, no, a, I'm the most powerful person in the country now. Oh, oops. So that Kevin, is what he looked like. <laughs> Kevin McCarthy gets forced out early fall, and there's no succession plan. There, There's no next step that Republicans uh, in the, the U.S. House have, have yet uh, corralled around. So McHenry falls up. I, I don't know a better way to put it. Please correct me. He falls up into the speakership. Uh, tell us a little bit. Just remind us, Danielle, what those few weeks uh, were, were like for him. Uh, hellacious, I would say. Um, no, so he knew this was coming. I think for about two weeks he had warning um, that he was so— 
let me step back. So Kevin McCarthy was required as House Speaker from a post 9-11 rule to keep a list of potential successors. And this list was meant to be if, God forbid, something happened to the House Speaker um, in time of war, in time of a terrorist attack, anything like that, that somebody could replace him very quickly to keep Congress moving. What they didn't anticipate was a in fight within Congress and the Republican Party to oust the House Speaker. And so uh, Representative McCarthy knew he was going he was at the top of the list for about two weeks. He knew he was going to take over. He thought it would be like a 24 hour, 48 hour process. Mm. But because the GOP was infighting, they could not coalesce behind one person to take charge. And so uh, poor interim Speaker McHenry was Speaker McHenry for three (laughs) weeks. He ended up with armored vehicles. His kids were riding in the armored vehicles. Um, I hear he had security at his house in Denver, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Um, His entire life changed for those three weeks. And... He is somebody who doesn't like attention, and he was getting all the attention. I followed that poor man around the Capitol, in and out. That He knows every secret tunnel in that building. Um, it was a lot. I came around a corner with him one time, and I think 200 reporters like swarmed us, and I got separated from him. And from his perspective, it was a little terrifying to watch. Little man in a bow tie, self-described, if I, if I heard you right. About self-described. Th- three minutes ago. Um, I want to just add a little bit of context to this. Uh, per a constitutional scholar, when this all was playing out, this really was a remarkable moment. I want to underscore that. Patrick McHenry yeah. was not in the line of succession to the president. Normally, the Speaker uh, of the U.S. House is second in line. There's the vice yes. president first in line and then the Speaker. Uh, now, he, was, he became, for a time, the second representative from North Carolina to ever serve as House Speaker. I am throwing Travis Fain on the spot here um, just because I'm picking on him a little bit. We'll have some fun with him here in a few minutes. Who's the only other person to have served as U.S. House Speaker from North Carolina? Any guesses? I don't know, but it was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. It was, uh, Danielle, do you remember? I know we talked about this a a couple months ago. I know it wasn't Cannon, but everyone yelled at me because Mr. Cannon was uh, from North Carolina, but he actually became Speaker through some other state. So it was Nathaniel Macon, the nation's fifth Speaker, from 1801 to 1807. So Travis hit a long time ago on the head. And I just would like to note, there's someone out there listening right now going, wait a second, what about Polk? What about James K. Polk, who was born in Raleigh, but served in Congress while representing Tennessee? And here's a really silly esoteric fact, but I'm going to do it because I can do it. Uh, James K. Polk is the only person to ever serve as U.S. House Speaker and then president of the United States. And not a great figure in either either role. He's not really remembered as a great president in, in uh, American history. One of the history. worst, as a matter of fact. <laughs> We're going to get more to Patrick, a little bit more with McHenry on the other side. Also, uh, Tim Moore, plenty of drama for the longest serving State House Speaker in North Carolina history as he embarks on uh, a new run here in 2024. And there are other things to keep our ears tuned for as we think about 2024, including redistricting, the next budget battle, and a casino. Will there be slot machines and blackjack and roulette tables coming to a Rockingham County locale near you in 2024? We'll discuss that on the other side with Travis Fain, Don Vaughn, Danielle Battaglia, and Colin Campbell. This is the North Carolina News and Politics Year in Review here on Due South from North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.
Due South here on North Carolina Public Radio, WNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. We are reviewing North Carolina's 2023 news and largely political happenings with WNC Capitol Bureau Chief Colin Campbell, McClatchy Capitol Hill correspondent Danielle Battaglia, News and Observer Capitol Bureau Chief Don Vaughn, and WRAL State House reporter Travis Fain. Now, I could save 60 or 90 seconds at the end, um, but I don't want to rush this. And I hope I don't get emotional because no one wants to hear me get emotional on the radio. But we uh, might all get emotional. Th- this is one of Travis Fane's, a.k.a. T. Fane's last acts of journalism uh, here in North Carolina. Uh, for those that don't know, Travis is leaving the journalism space uh, for for more time with family, more time to be a dad and a husband. Uh, and the hours are lame and the pay is kind of lame. Uh, so we wish Travis a beautiful next chapter, and we're excited to see you go, but I am sad to see you go. Well, thank you. I appreciate you mentioning that. And I want to just note that off the top, and I'm just, that Colin and Don do not know that I was going to say this, but I want to just see if we have any Travis stories, any Travis uh, images or things that will linger. Um, and I'll, I'll give you one is if you want to sit on it for a second. So I'll, I'll set it up this way at the legislature in the basement, the office that I used to occupy that Colin uh, now does wonderful reporting for WNC out of is just uh, inside or next to Travis's desk. And every now and then you just hear like this big, deep sigh. And you're like, oh, Travis is talking to, I don't know, some party operative, somebody who raises money, somebody who's just BSing him. And he he, he had had enough and it, it generally came through with a, it's a joy to listen to. A... <laughs> that was a good impression of the Travis side. Thank yeah, you. I, I think we're losing one of our resident curmudgeons in the best possible way in the uh, the press room. Um, and, I, and I say that lovingly. Like we, we need someone to like hilariously grump about things in that room when things are getting crazy and we're all stressed out. And that has largely been Travis's role for the past however many years you've been been down there with us. I really can't say enough good things about Travis as a press corps colleague and a reporter and a a rival, right? Because yeah. we're it, competitors. It's fun to compete against Travis because he, without fail, every week or so, there'll be a story like, dang, I wish I'd had that story, but I had no idea it was coming. I've been mad at him since 2014 for stealing a story from me that I worked nine months to get, and somehow it got leaked to him before me. But <laughs> it would be a major loss to North Carolina to not have him in journalism. You want a final word here? No, that's very kind. Uh, you know, I, and I am a curmudgeon. Uh, I worked with a guy, one of the best reporters I've ever known in Macon, Georgia. His name's Mike Danilla, and he now does comms work for the former wrestler who is the mayor of Knoxville. Uh, and uh, we used to say, if you're not bitter, you're not paying attention. I do have one Travis anecdote I think I can share. A lot of the Please. discussion in the press room stays in the press room, but this was on the on the House floor. Uh, so Speaker Moore calls Travis Oscar the Grouch like multiple times, and it's really funny. But it's a compliment because it's you calling BS on people. And if we can ask the kind of questions, a Travis type of question, then we're, we're holding them accountable, too. Uh, but uh, one time uh, Moore said to you, Travis, can't you ask a positive question? And you said, are you positive that it was just great, great moment? <laughs> we're uh, we're wrapping up the year here on Due South. We're saying goodbye to Travis Fain, who uh, has had a wonderful journalism career. He has covered state legislatures, I believe, in three states, Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia, formerly a scribe of the News and Record, most recently a state government reporter at WRAL. Now, Travis has spent time on the floor of the North Carolina House this year with Don and with Colin. Um, 
following one of the more tawdry stories of the year, perhaps a positive question could have been, are you in love? I, I don't know, but we'll, we'll get to that question in a minute. Speaker Tim Moore responding to a recent lawsuit filed against him. According to that lawsuit, Moore had an affair with a married woman. Moore claims the woman was separated at the time of their relationship. I'm a divorced man. Uh, always understood that uh, Ms. Laster was, was separated, as she's made in, very clearly in her statements. You know, over that period of time, it was a casual relationship. It was it was sporadic at best. All right, quick recap and then a question here. Speaker Tim Moore had a relationship, a sporadic, his word, a sexual relationship, dating relationship with, uh, with, with a woman who I'd like for you to unpack and tell us a little bit about who she is. But my question, Don, is like, these are two consenting adults. Why do I care? Should right. I care? Well, Jamie Lyles lasted her. And, and I thought she never, I don't think she gave interviews to anybody. Um, but her statement through her lawyer when all this came out is basically that she's a grown adult. She can make her own decisions and that sort of thing. That it, um, So that's kind of all we know from, from her because the lawsuit were all her estranged husband's allegations. Yeah, we, and it was clearly a messy marriage uh, between the two of them. And, you know, wh- how separated they were is in some question. Uh, but they clearly were not, you know, happy and together. Uh, I think what really made it news beyond the tawdry nature of mm-hmm. it was the fact she's a state employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had received a number of raises uh, during the life of this affair. Uh, and and it, Moore was not in a position to grant those raises, but... Her job was she worked for an entity that needed things from the General Assembly. Uh, And some people said, well, maybe to keep Tim more happy. And we're not talking about a two and a half percent bump and a one and a half percent bump there. We're talking about some significant financial uh, increases. And there there was to me, at least on the outside, if not more central to the story, there was an issue of power dynamic here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is somebody who had something to gain from the legislature, although arguably pretty much everybody in Tim Moore's orbit probably falls into that category. Uh, the other aspect of the lawsuit was the allegations that Scott Lasseter, the uh, now ex-husband, was making regarding uh, Moore allegedly having traded favors with lobbyists for sex and things of that nature. There's no evidence that ever came out to support that claim, I should note, uh, but it certainly uh, added to the intrigue uh, around this whole situation that eventually just sort of went away abruptly with a, a settlement and some confidentiality. And now Scott Lasseter is running for state house, I believe, in, in Wake County. So we'll see how that plays out. That sounds right. He's run before. Yeah, I can't remember what yeah, position. Former Apex town council member, I believe. All right. So, and, yep, go ahead, Don. I was going to say before, um, I had a, a very uncomfortable, awkward interview with Moore about this um, as he uh, started talking to, to reporters. And I asked about this stuff in the lawsuit that that he and Scott Lasseter met at a Biscuitville. I'm like, what happened? Why? And asked, you know, it's the day after Christmas. And he he used the phrase that at the end of their conversation, they, and I quote, hugged it out, if you will. At a Biscuitville. Which is just, yeah. Every time I pass a Biscuitville now, I think of Tim Moore. I just can't Everybody disassociate does. him from that place. Among the best gag gifts, stocking stuffers, or uh, Yankee gift swap ideas for this year, if you're in the North Carolina political circle, has got to be a gift card to Biscuitville. Like, how many yeah. holiday parties is that popping? Just like a, a little 10 or 15, and maybe like a little sticker yeah. of something. Here, have a hug. Yeah. Have a hug down at the Biscuitville. <laughs> All right. Uh, let, it, it, I think in more concrete news, at least spinning it toward uh, 2024, Tim Moore is not running for re-election of the state house, 
and he is running for a congressional seat, 14th district, which is presently held by Jeff Jackson. It is a Democratic-leaning district at the moment, but because of uh, redistricting, it will uh, be a Republican-leaning seat next year. Uh, Danielle, any reason not to expect that Tim Moore will be a member of the next Congress in about 12 and a half months? Well, I thought there would be reason, but it seems like Pat Harrigan, who was running there, hugged it out with Tim Moore and went over to the 10th district, which actually is because Representative Patrick McHenry is retiring from his district He's sick of it up here. And uh, so he moved over to 10, which is where he's actually from, leaving uh, Tim Moore with very few opponents, no one with like huge name recognition. It seems like he'll be able to walk in there pretty well, although that's up to the voters. That was a great response because you answered the question on Moore. You got back to McHenry, which I failed to close the loop on at the end of our last segment, noting that he is leaving Congress. And you set it all up wonderfully uh, for 2024-2025. And you've allowed me to move on to our next topic, which was one of the biggest ones of the year. We have come to an agreement on Medicaid expansion. And uh, the uh, agreement uh, is that the Senate will modify the House's Medicaid expansion bill. And at the end of the day, what we know is we're going to have a legislation, we're going to have a policy that is going to expand access to working North Carolinians. We've all covered a lot of policy issues across the last eight, 10 years at the legislature. There have been voter ID issues and redistricting and budget battles. Medicaid is right at the top from my perspective. This was a huge moment, even though it's a little one. They went Medicaid, no, not Medicare, Medicaid. This is for people living in poverty, some people with disabilities, and it expands coverage to 600,000 North Carolinians. Uh, what struck you most about this deal finally coming to fruition? Kind of the way it came together over the last year and a half or so, where, uh, you know, Republicans obviously tried over and over again at the congressional level to kill. Uh, Obamacare and Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act is that's where expansion comes from. Expansion is meant to cover people who uh, don't make enough money to buy an Obamacare policy with the government subsidies. So they were all the, the, the donut hole, if you will. They were they were left out. Right. Um, eventually, Republicans saw that the money was going to be there. The government put the federal government put more money into it to kind of bribe uh, state governments to expand Medicaid. But what really sealed the deal, I think was the rise in rural rural Republican areas of support for expansion because there are populations there where they, they don't have health coverage. Maybe their hospital is closing. Their local sheriff is tired of at the jail having to, to, to provide mental health care and other health coverage to people who could qualify for Medicaid expansion. And it just kind of bubbled up from the grassroots that this Democratic priority should also be a Republican one. And a lot of money flowing. Yeah, the I mean the the you know two billion dollar incentive from the federal government didn't hurt. I think the sort of political reality that Obamacare is not going away anytime soon. All Republicans seem to have, at least in the legislature, have agreed to that uh, as the reality. It sort of takes away the argument of like, oh, what if we get help, help stuck with the bill later down the road? Well, that's probably not going to happen. Um, so there, the objections just kind of melted over time. I think. I think melting is a good way to describe it. You know, it almost seems like it went from this big contentious issue to poof, but not really. It's just like that very long road of getting anything done in government. And all of a sudden, here it is. And it was such a big deal for so many years. And now it's just here and it's over. I'm going to stick with a word you just mentioned. I hope that this doesn't come across as too snarky because I'm not trying to be snarky. But you use the word melted and I can't help but think of one Bethwood, the state auditor whose reputation to a degree 
melted away here in the last year. After leaving that parking lot, Wood crashed her state-owned 2021 Toyota Camry. And according to a report from Raleigh Police, the vehicle Wood was driving rode on top of a parked car, and they found it with the engine still running. She says she was leaving a holiday party. She's now facing a misdemeanor charge for hit and run, leaving the scene, and property damage, as well as a traffic infraction in that case. All right, now let me just pause and acknowledge I'm not trying to make light of a car accident. Fortunately, no one was injured here. I encourage all of you to be like, melting is maybe not the best word to use here, but... I'm going to let you take it away. State Auditor Beth Wood has this accident in a state-owned vehicle. And, you know, less than a year later, she announces not only is she not running for re-election, but she steps down early. She stepped down earlier uh, this month. Did it Did it melt away her reputation? Did it tarnish it? Did I think it? slowly it was sort of this almost, uh, to keep with the metaphor, like a dripping melt of mm -hmm. like her, her, you know, status as the ice queen of government oversight um, because of, you know, she's been known for so many years for this dogged approach to investigating state agencies, looking at misspending, misuse, waste in government. Uh, and then she misuses a government car by taking it to a holiday party, maybe having a drink or two. And then having the crash. And then what really finally sealed it, I mean, she held on for several more months after that, was the additional charges that she had misused the government car by taking it to, like, a hair appointment and things yeah. of a personal nature. Uh, and that ultimately was what caused her to decide to resign. And now we're, as of this past week, have a brand new state auditor uh, who will be running for re-election next year. It seemed like she was just going to try to ride it out and see if, and because she had gained enough goodwill from her own party as a Democrat, Republicans said, you know, let's just let the court, you know, process play out. And with um, with her wreck in uh, a year ago, December. But if her job is to oversee other people using their state owned things correctly and then she doesn't do it herself, that seemed to finally be the end. Right. Because she I mean, she left the scene of the accident, you know, presumably because she'd had, as she later admitted, two glasses of wine at this holiday party. A factor of two, perhaps. It's always yeah, two. It's always two, two, yeah. Yeah, it's two always two. two. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, so the court process proceeded, and she was not going to resign, and she wasn't getting pressure, at least not publicly, from Democrats to resign. You know, the governor didn't call, call her out or anything. But it seems like somebody somewhere or somebody's decided she did not pay enough penance for what happened. And so the State Bureau of Investigation investigated and said, oh, look at all those other vehicle uses that she's done that are questionable over the years. She got indicted for that. Right. Uh, those are misdemeanor charges. How often do you hear about a grand jury indicting someone on misdemeanors? Uh, and then once that happened, her support had eroded enough to where she did. And, and Republicans were lining up to run against her, thinking this was going to be the vulnerable year. And so I think Democrats saw that. And with the opportunity for Governor Roy Cooper to appoint a replacement for the rest of her term, putting former Wake County Commissioner Jessica Holmes in that role uh, gives the Democrats a much better chance at keeping the auditor's office in their party's hands come next year. Keeping that, the auditor's office in, in, in Democratic hands and also elevating Holmes, Jessica Holmes, who was an up-and-comer in the mm -hmm. state Democratic Party. First right. black Th woman to serve on the council of state. Right. This is, your, this is her chance. And, th and this is a big bench building exercise for Democrats. Right. Just a couple of minutes left here on Due South, really in 2023. We'll be off next week. But before we do that, one more story to sneak in. The state lawmakers finally reached a deal on the $30 billion budget. The deal comes nearly 80 days past due. A major headline, the deal removes a proposal to expand gambling in North Carolina. No casino. Yet, sports gambling, at least online gambling, likely to arrive here, I believe, in North Carolina in the next couple of months. As for this casino, I'm just giving you 30 seconds. I'm going to give you the final word, Travis. Do you think there's a casino in Rockingham County that has been approved come Labor Day of 2024? 
Uh, quite possibly. I mean, they're coming back to this. Uh, it will continue to be an, an animating issue. Phil Berger is not going to let it go. The Rockingham County uh, Senator, who's the top Republican in the state. And I think now that he's avoided a primary challenge, that's a sign that there's not as much of a uh, desire to uh, oust him over this particular issue. He's got more political capital uh, going into the short session for that. Yeah, these are $500 million projects, these these casinos. That sort of money doesn't, doesn't – it might slow down, but it don't stop. I don't think he's going to let it go. And his son is county commissioner out there. All sorts of interesting wrinkles, which we will continue to keep our ears on in 2024. Colin Campbell is WNC's Capitol Bureau Chief. Don Vaughn is Capitol Bureau Chief at the News and Observer. Danielle Battaglia is Capitol Hill correspondent for McClatchy. And Travis Fain is the outgoing Statehouse reporter at WRAL. Thanks, y'all. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. That will do it for Due South here in 2023. We're taking some time off next week. We'll return on Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024, with a preview of 2024 North Carolina politics. But of course, until then, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, and Happy New Year. And a big thanks to the many talented hands who have helped build Due South these first two months on the year. Our producers are Stacia Brown, Cole Del Charco, and Rachel McCarthy. Our technical director is Denarius Thomas. Our executive producer is Aaron Kiever. For the one and only Leonita Inch, my name is Jeff Tabiri. Talk to you again soon. 